Welcome to another episode of the RAG podcast. And for those of you who don't know, the RAG stands for Recruitment Agency Growth. Since early 2019, I've been interviewing the most successful and innovative recruitment owners to learn how they rose to the top of their game. In season seven, I'm going to be having raw, authentic and insightful conversations with agency owners, entrepreneurs, leaders, people across the industry. And I want to be learning about their ambitions, what's happening behind the scenes in their agencies today and their plans to navigate difficult market conditions. I'll be bringing you the latest and greatest recruitment stories every single week on Wednesdays at noon across multiple platforms. Stay tuned. Welcome back to another episode of the RAG podcast on this week's show. I was joined by Jamie Reynolds. Now, Jamie is a, well, he's technically not working right now. He's not a recruitment founder like the rest of my guests. Jamie was brought in to Cordant Group, Cordant People, big recruitment organization, over nine years ago um, to effectively help with some initial tender work. He'd run big global businesses in the facilities management space, services space, um, and he went from a 17-year-old to a CEO in 10 years. Um, and he was brought in and ended up turning around a 100 million a year account. And then he took over a 300 million a year in sales turnover recruitment firm with that was losing money. And within five years, got it to a 10 million EBITDA. He breaks down in this session how he got that change. Little things like finding efficiencies, creating a better culture. But really, Jamie's not a recruiter. He's someone who sits at the top, who explains, who gets people on board to a bigger picture, and, and he finds ways to turn businesses around for growth and, and profitability. He was then part of the T20 acquisition of the Corden Group and has worked with the likes of Hallian, who I've had on recently, um, and has recently left the organization. So he's very open. We go into lots of detail around the things he's done. Um, but if you're interested in finding out how you can scale, but find profitability, then Jamie's the man. I hope you enjoy this episode without further ado. Welcome to the RAG podcast. Good afternoon, Sean, and thank you for having me. Pleasure. Absolute pleasure, mate. We've uh, we've had this in the diary. We nearly, I nearly cancelled it. I'm, apologies. I've had a load of change going on as we come into the end of the year, but we're here now. It is uh this is this will be going live in January, but the, you know, we're filming this as we as we're in the run up to Christmas in in, in mid December. Um and it's uh it's a busy time for everyone. So thanks for making the time for us. Um, I've given a brief introduction to you, Jamie. Um, as you're not running a business today, you're not a recruitment owner like a lot of the guests I have. It's a hard one. But yeah. how would you, if someone was going to say, who is Jamie Reynolds on a really high level? I don't want like detailed stories. Just like, how do you describe yourself as to what you do? Wow. Well, that's a that's a very broad question. But who is Jamie Reynolds? Well, uh, I'm synonymous with the uh, the animal a rhino, and so I guess there's characteristics of the rhino that you know reflect me as a person, and that's you know relentless and resilient and rugged, and you know I'm a people person. You know every organisation that I've gone into and had the privilege to lead uh, or work for. Um, has been a people organization and I've got people to to follow. I've uh, I've got people to believe in themselves. I've got people to, you know, dream the impossible and make it happen. Uh, and so I guess at the very, very highest level, I'm a great people person. And that includes, of course, customer candidates, colleagues, the whole 360 piece. And, and I guess, yeah. you know, part of that authentic people centric, leader comes from the journey that I've been on, you know, 48 years of age, sitting here, exiting a business that was doing 1.4 billion in sales. And yet, you know, I'm a YTS failed fat kid from school and a council estate that was earning 68 pence an hour. So, you know, along that journey, there's lots of my stories and then I can, you know, share uh, without the bullshit, I can share and, and people can resonate with it. And um, and so I think that in a very sort of high level is is, is the Jamie. The, the so you've ran you've run some pretty you've run some pretty sizable businesses. You've been through exits and you've spent a period of time in the recruitment sector. You're not necessarily from the recruitment sector. You didn't you didn't 
cut your teeth as a recruiter, right? No, that's absolutely right. I mean, um, I've been in the recruitment sector, I guess, for what the last nine and a half years, uh, and I can we'll, we'll talk mm. about that in a moment in, in various guises. Uh, but prior to that, I grew up in uh, the engineering, FM, uh, real estate sector, facilities management, um, uh, and spent what the best part of you know, 20 years in that space. But, and I guess, you know, coming from a services sector into the recruitment sector, there are vast amounts of similarities. Um, there's some significant yeah. differences, and maybe we'll touch upon those from my, my experience. But, you know, ultimately, in that service world, whichever services we were uh, delivering at the coal face, whether that was engineering, energy management, cleaning, catering, or, or man guarding, it's a service that included people. And of course, we were serving property that was owned by customer and people. And in the middle, we had great facilitators. And you're deploying, um, you're deploying people to absolutely. recruiting people ultimately to, to fill a service. It's not, yeah, there's this huge similarity. So it's very, you know, they're very similar. Um, and so, you know, building businesses in the service sector, I think gave me, you know, clearly a different view. And when I came into the recruitment sector, by default, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But you know, I, I got to look at the businesses and ask the silly questions: well, what, Why do we do that? And, and, and is that the best way? And what could we do if we add A, B, and C? And so I started to get people to think differently, and 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 therefore that created opportunity to change and transform. And that's ultimately what I've been doing for the sort of last you know decade, really. So how? Talk us through the, the journey then of like, I don't need the detail, but like, how did you get from, you know, a, a lad from the from <laughs> Stoke to to running to running businesses? How did you get to like CEO level? Yeah, well, or senior level. Like, what was what was your, I guess, what's your ingredient to rising yeah. through quite quickly to get to the top? So, so I'll give you the short version. I would uh, we'd be on till tomorrow. Um, so, kicked out of school. Pottery's lad, Stoke on Trent, went to pick my grandma up, um, was just turning 17, went into a pub, thought I'd buy that underage beer, I got a beer, and the business next door that I started with was a company called George S. Hall. The founder was, you know, George. And they've been going sort of 90 years. I get talking to a short Geordie guy at the bar. It turns out he's the managing director. I tell him his HR department's terrible because they didn't send me a Dear John letter. He gave me his business card. He asked me to come to an interview the following week. I did. And to my great surprise and shock, I was interviewed by his PA at the time. And uh, she was a dragon. She told me I was a, a young man when she opened the door. I qualified that very quickly. And she said, this job is for receptionist. You're going to sit on, you know, the reception desk and meet and greet and 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 for for a split second, I swore in my mind, and then I said, "No, I can do that." And I went and sat on reception. I thought I was the best receptionist ever. Good morning, George. All Jamie speaking. Um, I sat there for an hour, and actually, a failed receptionist because I didn't get the job. But the lady walked past, and she rang me up, and uh, Elaine Doxy, her name, never forget it. And she said, "Jamie, I've got a YTS position. I heard you didn't get that job." Blah blah blah. I said, what does that mean? She said, well, we're going to send you back to school and we'll pay you £27.50, 68 pence an hour to basically make the coffee, fill the photocopier, and we'll start to put you in the accounts department. And so I did. Three months later, I bump into the MD in the toilets. Uh, I'm excited, a million miles an hour. He unravels the story. I'm invited down to a meeting and George apologised profusely. But at the time, he had two engine, three engineering graduates from London who were, say, 24, 25. They got a property there where they were developing a management program. And he asked me, would I leave home? I said, yes. I moved out of family digs that weekend. I moved into the property. And they put me back to school for the next 10 years doing, you know, accounting operations. I finished my degree at Staffs Uni in, 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 in evenings. And I went from that 17-year-old YTS. I went to New York at 29 to open up their US operation, which is still going today. I'm very proud of that. 
And at th- 33, I was, um, I was appointed uh, co-CEO. So the business went from 40 million revenues to a quarter of a billion. Um, and I became co-CEO. Uh, my partner had a, a, a very you know, severe freak skiing accident. So I was parachuted back into the UK um, and the family delisted the business, um, you know, 12 months later. And so at that point, I come out after 18 years. So my story is 18 years long in that organization. And um, wow. um, and I went into a, a, another FM sort of business turnaround where I guess I had my first experience of private equity. So we may be talking talk later for, for your audience about wealth creation and, and lessons learned. But if you're ever granted a, a, an exclusive opportunity at a management buyout, don't believe them. Because that's what I did. That's what I was offered after two and a half years in that business. Um, and it wasn't exclusive. It just meant they kept us on side whilst, whilst we went around getting funds and they uh, they found to trade by it. And so on my CV, that's why I then go to rent kill initial initial facilities because they acquire uh, money support services into, into serve through a, 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 an acquisition. And then I got a call from a very great friend of mine who'd been in, you know, been a mentor, business coach, boss for a number of years in the FM sector. And he'd landed at the Corden Group. I didn't know of the Corden Group. The Corden Group at that time was probably about 13, 14 different organizations. Um, They'd got a services business in cleaning and, and man guarding and all the rest of the assets were uh, recruitment businesses of some shape or size. And so the original yeah. plan was uh, the Gordon Group and Philip were looking to complete on an acquisition in the technical engineering space to, com- to merge together with the cleaning and the, uh, the man-guarding business. And, and Chris and I would run that. Um, and they brought another chief exec in from a deco to look after the recruitment brands but actually what happened by the time i arrived is um, a couple of businesses were acquired sugarman health uh, health and education and uh, eurostaff the the it business uh with earthstaff uh, property construction in germany and so they basically used up all the funds and so we didn't complete on the engineering assets that i was lined up for and so um i'm right. here now within the group and um, and it was a sort of, you know, I would say, broad church of assets, and uh, but they they didn't speak to each other. I used to describe the Ullman family as investment angels, really. You know, they got this portfolio of brands, doing all this brilliant stuff in all sorts of territories. But actually, nobody was cross-selling. There was no collaboration. There was no innovation. There was no real corporate strategy, um, and businesses were, you know, uh, you know trickling along at, at whatever rate the, the the leader wanted really um and so um and so philip asked me to stick around because they got a big bid on with a global logistics american uh three you know 3pl i think a household name that we can delivers every day in cardboard boxes and they'd been delivering blue collar temporary work for this particular client for about 19 years since they'd arrived in the uk and um, of course, it was no margin, and um, he was paranoid they were going to lose the business to one of the American recruitment companies. And so, he asked me to go along and and basically run the tender process with my experience of uh, outsourcing. And I came back, and I was quite scathing of what I saw. I mean, you know, I just it blew my mind in terms of the delivery model, sort of for internally our side but also what was expected from the client side. And um, and um, I came back and sort of, you know, gave him waltz and all, and, and he said something that was really profound. He, he said to me, well, what do you expect when we only pay the people? I think at the time minimum wage was about £6.50. And I looked yeah. at him in the eyes, and I'd grown up on a tough council estate, and my mum and dad both cleaned. And, and, and so that was my mum and dad he was really referring to. As Philip, you're so mm. you're so out of touch. It's irrespective of what we pay the individual or the clients willing to pay. That that doesn't define a delivery model. 
I said, if you look at the cleaning sectors worth billions, you've got global accounting there and they're all making money. Right. And, and, and you don't have to look at these gray margin sort of scenarios that I was quickly becoming, you know, uh, familiar with. And he said, look, well, go and go and run the bid. You've got free reign. And um, yeah, it was 100 million. Revenue so let's bid. just stop a second. So yeah. let me just rephrase what you've said so I understand it. And so you've gone into the Cordant Group, which has got recruitment firms. It's got other businesses. Yeah. You've been lined up for a, for a role that's non-recruitment related. That doesn't come through because of the pots dry. So they're like, right, on the recruitment side, in one of the brands, they've got a huge account. You don't want to name them clearly, but you have technically named them anyway because they deliver everything for everyone in the UK. Um, so you, they're about to, they're up for renewal on a tender. With yeah. a, with a, how much was that account worth on an annual basis? 100 million sales, yeah. 100 million, million in sales, right. Yeah. You've never done a day in the recruitment sector. Never. What was your job title of that? What, what, who are you at this point to, those, to these guys? Yeah, yeah, I think they gave me the title of commercial director, um, but effectively I'm right. a consulting assignment, right? And, um, and so we go in, we redesign, and uh, for this particular customer, for the scale of uh, opportunity, you're restricted to 10 sides of paper. So no 100-page outsourcing, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's 10. And when you get to do the pitch deck, it's 10 slides and one being the intro, one being the close. It's precision stuff. And I always remember we finished the pitch and the customer team, stakeholders from around the globe, really. There was a pregnant pause as they said, Jamie, you've presented an organization we do not recognize. I don't forget we've been servicing, you know, been servicing them for 19 years. And um, pregnant pause. And of course, that's really good because we wanted change, we wanted transformation. And uh, I came back, we've secured the business, and uh, and then Philip and Chris, they said, brilliant, uh, now can you deliver it for us, of course? You know, will you go and mobilise and transition this new delivery model? Um, I, no, I got nothing else to do at the time and said, okay, no problem, yeah, let's do it. And a couple of months later, the a gap appeared in the leadership uh, the business was PMP recruitment. Uh, and um, they came to me and said, look, Jamie, will you not only deliver the uh, the you know, the big contract, but will you transform the rest of the business? And so I came in as MD of you know, PMP in 2016. Business was turning over collectively about 330 million. It was losing money on a look forward basis when, you know, travel and subsidy schemes. This so 330 million in turnover and it, yeah, 330 million turnover, no profit whatsoever. Yeah. No, on a look Losing forward money. basis. Yeah. So, you know, and I inherited a management team that, you know, it's probably one of the, you know, I call my proudest moments trophies, but it would sit in my trophy cabinet of one of the proudest because that management team that nobody had a great word for internally and probably externally, um, we set about transforming that business. And when we sold the business in 2021, we were doing circa 650 million and over 10 million of organic profit. But the management team I inherited on day one with the management team that went with the business, you know, 18 months ago. And um, and so transformation, you know, come back to the question is, what is Jamie? I went into that business, of course, with a different set of eyes. And I asked the business, I looked at the business, I saw the opportunities, and then I empowered the people to think differently. You know, almost I used the, I don't know if you go back as, as old as I am, but there's a cartoon character called Jamie and his magic torch, right? It's a bit like the genie. What could we do with this business if there was no limitations? You know, what would Heineken do with this business if they were in recruitment? So when we looked at paperwork, I said, what, what happened if we, you know, digitalize the entire process? What if a candidate who was taking four and a half hours in a branch filling pieces of paperwork in could sit at home with a piece of technology and apply for a job? What if that could happen? And then, of course, we went to start, we started to, to make these things happen. And that's where we created, yeah, transformation on a scale. that. So what was the business? You, you talk about 
the turnover numbers and it's losing money. Yeah. How many staff did it, the business have? So in terms, if you if you, if you take uh, the temporary, because blue collar, temporary logistics, food, agriculture, manufacturing, all of that. So in peak on our payroll, we would be up to fifty thousand employees. Um, you know, fun what about fun what about call staff that were not? Uh, what about head office staff that are not working on site for three hundred heads, permanent heads? Yeah. So, right. but then you would get that and volatility from sort of 8,000 to 30,000, 40,000, depending on requirements. So, so there was a term, come back to your, your sort of observations, and then there was a term in the business called an in-branch temp. And of course, I can ask all the silly questions, right? Because I don't know any better. So I'm like, what does an in-branch temp mean? And he said, oh, that means when we look to get higher 60 you know, temps for our customer, to manage the paperwork for that process, we have to hire an, a, a, a person in the office. And I'm going, so every time we scale, we have to, inc we have to increase overhead, right? So again, coming back to yeah. that core three, 400 heads, that may scale likewise to sort of six, 700. And so the inefficiency was, you know, second to none, of course, um, and therefore, but then you started to really look at the business and understand it. And, um, you know, I guess what I did is provide, you know, environments, platforms for people to transform their business. So the first thing I did after sort of 90 days, we created a community where anybody in the business could be a part of it. And, but the key component was, do you have an idea that will transform this business? And by definition, I don't mean hit hit a budget or do the day job or hit KPIs. I mean transform. And we created working groups around the, the, the UK. And they came back and presented all their ideas, a bit like Dragon's Den, right? And, and we distilled hmm. all of these fantastic ideas into 20 first-year transformational projects. And we then categorized the projects into people and technology and principled and performance um, and they included things like for example you talk about D learning and development and so the idea was at the time let's create a university not let's do D, not let's train people let's not get people up the learning game let's create a university and use the apprenticeship levy to give people the opportunity. If you're a picker and packer and want to do a level one in health and safety, you've got the opportunity. But if you want to do a master's degree, you can have the same opportunity. And so let's create a university. And so some great people went away, built that university. And of course, when we talked about R&D and pitches or talent attraction, there's something of real substance and it's deep rooted. And you take that one example, that was kind of, I guess, born out of my journey, going back to being a 17-year-old spotty fat kid who got an opportunity and was re-educated in an unorthodox, you know, unorthodox way. Um, but we took each one of those programs, and what I did, to the, and what my commitment to the people was, look, it's your great idea. We've signed it off. We'll make the resources. You've got to make it happen, and I'll facilitate. I'll, make, I'll hold you accountable. We'll put some, you know, governance around process. And if we achieve all of these transformations, of course, the numbers will take care of themselves. And but in my mind, it didn't matter whether we did one transformation or 10 or all 20. It was starting to build a culture of empowerment. People could think of new ways. They can embed them. They could own them. And so this this business that was stagnating, stifled, had phenomenal talent in. They just weren't given the environment to actually, you know, change their business. And 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 so we did that, of course, and we carried that journey on for four or five years. And and then in March 2020, the business transactioned. 2020 uh, human capital came in. Tristan Ramos and and the guys, uh, fantastic transaction because it brought a new energy, a new lifeblood. Um, and it, it was at that time then they said to me, look, Jay, uh, we'd like you to become the group CEO and take on all the businesses. Um, and I guess, you know, weave your magic again. And um, 
yeah, that's a that's a journey that's lasted for what best part of the last four years, which uh, I'm sure we'll touch upon in a moment. So, I just want to go back on it a bit yeah. because I think there's a lot there. There's yeah. a hell of a lot to them. It's huge, and there's for some people listening, they might be like, "All right, well, it all sounds great," but like, yeah, the, the question I have that come, is coming through my mind is a lot of recruitment businesses will sit there and try and change stuff, right? So they'll have different ideas and initiatives. They might have a little committee, even in a small business, you might have a little committee where the people are like, I'll do this and I'll do that. What advice would you give someone then that wants to make a number of different projects run at the same time? Because what you're saying is 20 projects. That sounds like change fatigue to me. That sounds like a, a risk. If you're trying to do all these things at once, how many of them are going to fall on each other and cause problems and... So what's your advice to people around so, so my first building advice, a robust yeah. project? So first advice would be, um, whilst I probably had lots of ideas of what to do, if it's my idea and then I ask people to do it, it becomes a task. So the first part is it's got the people have got to want to do something, right? It's got to be their idea. And, and if they own it and really believe in it, then they're going to, in my experience, be galvanized to do it beyond the day job as well right and 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 also if you're linking people to you know so you've got the passion and you've got the idea but then you've also got the purpose so purpose is really important so i talked about the university idea that was one so let's take another one so you know most organizations want to do good things right give back charities blah 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 and what we tapped into very quickly was in that high volume blue collar space, the the criminal activity around modern day slavery was, you know, is prevalent, right? And so, you know, people were, you know, there was labor exploitation in that sector, right? And and so I went and researched this and got to understand it. And actually, this is people taking passports off people, you know, housing, you know, it is modern day slavery. Um, and we then, through that research, connected to uh, charities that were supporting the victims of modern day slavery, right? And so we became associated with uh, the charity Unseen, which support victims of a higher classification. So really, you know, hard done by individuals. And what that did is it galvanized the business because across all our warehouses and factories, there was demographics that were either involved because they were policing the sites or, you know, they'd seen examples of modern day slavery. So what we wanted to do is create good work, good working practices, and we wanted to eradicate modern day slavery. And so there's an example of a project that everybody connected to the purpose was about helping people and actually raising awareness of the criminal activity. But by definition, in working with your customer, we wanted to break the taboo around modern day slavery, which was actually, you know, if we find an incident, let's bury it, let's heal mm. it, because the brand doesn't want any reputational issue. Whereas actually what we needed to do is go, look, we've 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 stopped modern day slavery in this site because we're going to prevent criminals from exploiting people. And if we if we do that and we start to raise the awareness about our peer groups. We get our industry associated bodies involved. We get customers to be champions and put their heads above parapets. We start changing culture and we start changing, you know, yeah. the, the industry. And so there was a number of people who were absolutely... What, I guess what my question is, though... Sorry. So what my question is, though, is like, I think you you started a little bit more in that at the beginning was... Like, if I'm a recruitment owner, I've got 10 projects that my team want to do. Yeah. How do I ensure that I don't... Actually, the business doesn't get so project-orientated that we don't get any fucking work done. And we're... Because I think that's a risk. You can you can, you can can take people away from their core day job of selling or whatever they're doing. Yeah. And you can have all these amazing blue sky ideas, but actually the business doesn't move forward because yeah. everyone's working on nice to do things. So, so I guess that's the, the bit I think is a bit of a, I guess the people worry about the nice to do, even if it's if people are passionate about it, even if it's purpose led, it's got to lead to business success. So let, let take the, the, the modern day slavery piece. You start to become the brand 
that is the most reputable because you're compliant, you're purpose-led, you're dealing with issues, you're treating people fairly. So when you're pitching for a contract, the next tender, and you talk about purpose and you talk about modern-day slavery, we're not talking about the badge on the front, which everybody's got the badge on the front. You're now recognised because you're making change in the marketplace. And so if that gives you the one or two delta... you actually got substance. You then win the next contract. And so, you know, the university was not BS. We were... It helped us attract people. It helped us, you know, address attrition. It helped us yeah. to be recognised as being a socially, you know, uh, a, you know, a social leader in the marketplace. We took that, for example, and said, right, how do we create um, social mobility? Well, what's that? Okay, well, we can be good citizens and help people in work. But actually, if there's a commercial element to it which is our, work, uh, our work-based learning team who can gain funds from government sources, which gives us profit and margin. But actually, it takes people from unemployed um, situations or uh, deprived sort of communities and actually put those into work. So it's satisfying a customer service requirement by being a good citizen putting people into work, good citizen, and making money from the various, you know, revenue and GP lines, and you're a consultant who makes money, it's good business. So it kind of got to, it's got to be 360. Your point's very valid. If it, and if it's not well thought out, um, then it won't get anywhere, right? It could distract the business. And I guess that's the process we went through. When we considered the projects, People didn't have a project to you know, go and do anything they wanted. It went through a process of really understanding, you know, where we're going to, what's it going to transform our business, which is growth and profitability. End of story, you know, because we yeah. need to move this asset. Um, and so your due diligence has got to be. Really- how long? How long did you have? Like, because I think if you're you're walking into a business as a CEO or the MD, and and you're in a, you know, it's three hundred million turnover losing money like you say if you look forward that how long did you have to to turn that around before it's a bit like a football manager they get into a role <laughs> you know and a team's going to get relegated in the premier league like they're not going to have that long they've got to do some there's only so long you can sit there and have your meetings and and create a culture before someone above you's going this needs to change. Did you have like a bit of pressure on your head? No, I didn't actually. And that, you know, that's credit to, you know, the Ullman family in terms of, you know, giving people time. Um, yeah. you, you could question them, you know, you could criticise their motivations or leadership from a different angle. But for actually, actually you know, come in, how, you know, be given autonomy of this business um, and no metrics to be, to beat uh, or, or meet. You know that was the autonomy they gave me, and you know everybody else who was in the leadership. I guess what I had was a big business to play with and a load of inefficiency, um, and, but some brilliant people, and we had scale, right? That's what I had scale, and so I knew very quickly by moving certain dials, the numbers would look transformational very quick. So, good example being is. You know, when I went in, you know, the first thing I said to the team is, what's our, what's our ideal customer, right? And so we were very busy with lots of customers. When you look to the metrics, we weren't really satisfying anybody, any customer to the, the levels that we were contractually obliged to do, right? So when you dissect that, I said, well, you know, who's the ideal customer? Very quickly, nobody could actually articulate that. So we broke it down into a number of key areas predominantly around, um, you know, sort of working practices and, uh, you know, minimum wage standards. So you could say, you know, moral, ethical, compliant, blah, blah, blah. But ultimately I said, look, who will allow us to make some money? Who will pay us on time? And who will value us as a business partner that we could possibly strategically grow with? Those are the three for me. And if a customer falls outside of those three, the question is, can we flip them from right to left, i.e. not so good customer into good customer? And if we can't, let's professionally exit. So we can really focus on the customers and the sectors. A message from our sponsor, Vincere. Another of their products is known as Time Temp. 
This is your complete integrated timesheet workforce management solution. It's pre-built, it's pre-integrated, and it's designed so no matter how much your business grows, you'll be able to keep track of every single worker in one place in your CRM. All the changes inside Vincherry will sync with TimeTemp and they'll be fed back into your account, automating the entire process with two-way sync from your front to back office. Vincere's time temp enables you to create shift schedules, search available workers, shortlist and book assignments in seconds. They'll also allow you to track time, track leave, track expenses within their built-in payroll engine. It's called Door Clock. And then they've also got a mobile app for the on-the-go worker. If again, you're looking to get more from your CRM, Vincere's time temp solution is another tool that enables you to perform more of your business critical processes in your CRM. Find out if you could use Time Temp via the link in the show notes. Right, let's get back to it. And so come back to that idea, there was a process that we went through and actually in that first year, we exited professionally. Sales-wise, about 64 million of revenue. But we were making clearly no money on that. But what it did is free up capacity in the people to go and service the customers we wanted to work with. But, 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 but more than that, what, we, what it demonstrated to the people was, actually, I valued what they do. Our management teams now value what you do. And if we're not going to work with a customer who also values you, we're not going to expect you to be there and show up. And so we were gaining trust very early that big change could happen and you could almost snowball you know, uh, in, into you know, real momentum. So once you turn this business around then, and it's now... When did it? When, when did it start to? Well, when did you start to see that your role was going to change? So you got this one business unit PMP, yeah, into a better place. What, how did your your own role within Corden grow? So 2019, it became public knowledge that the Corden Group, you know, was let's say in a process and 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 ownership was going to change. Right? I think I think one of the headlines in one of the national tabloids was, you know, called Dash for Cash. So I'm not breaking any, uh, you know, sort of any uh, trade secrets there. Um, The reality is, uh, at that time, I I was considering my future. So kind of this time, you know, 2019, and that's because promises on wealth creation, you know, never materialized. So again, advice, Mm -hmm. you've got got a piece of paper and it's not watertight and it's not hard equity then question whether the piece of paper is real and that's what happened to me right so and and so i was questioning uh, what next um then the process for the uh, suitors the buyers kicked off in earnest in sort of january 20 i met a number of the you know interested parties um i guess i'm running the biggest business then right i'm i'm running you know, 450 million revenue, and we're at about 6 million in terms of sale profitability. That's me as MD in, in five years. So a lot of people were interested in clearly meeting me, sort of the biggest part of the portfolio. And um, I have to say, I wasn't impressed with people, right? I met these a lot of bright people, a lot of wealthy people, a lot of, you know, professional services people who were on big dollar for the due diligence. And, and nobody ignited any interest from me and and until the 2020 guys came along and you know that's being brutally honest and and Tristan in particular and something said to me I think he's going to take this portfolio you know and if he does it could be interesting for me so I'm not going to resign until I know the outcome and I guess that was one of the best decisions (laughs) ever made because um, this is this is when the pandemic's coming as well right yeah, so um, I'm appointed uh, CEO on the Friday. And if we all remember that Sunday when Boris locks us down. So I'm, I'm appointed Friday. I think it's about the 17th. And we get the lockdown on the Sunday. And um, now we're into a different world. You know, you asked me before about expectations. How long have you got? Right. Now, now we've got an ownership group that's, you know, private equity, you know, uh, very, uh, let's say, uh, successful recruiters at heart. Um, and of course, the opportunity to transform the group is is clearly very evident. So we're into 90 day plans there. Right. And um, and we're doing it by Zoom. I'm sat here. So I remember on the Monday morning, I got a number of the leadership across the, the, the group. And we've got businesses then in, 
you know, three locations in Germany, in Belgium, Australia, all sorts of sectors. And you can also remember these people have been my peers for the last three or four years. And now I'm, you know, the boss um, or the T-boy, as I like to call myself. And, um, you know, I remember, let's say, let's say there's 50 people and kind of doing this address. And, and uh, I would say three people had their videos on. And um, I say, look, guys, girls, you know, I don't need to see your Instagram pictures, your best profiles, right? Who knows how, how long this thing is going to last? But what I would like, you can switch your cameras on. And I don't care if you've got really bad wallpaper, your hair's a mess, your dogs or cats are on, you're wearing your pajamas. I really don't care. And I meant it. But I would like to see you if we're going to talk because we're going to see a lot more. I feel like we're going to be doing this a lot over the next, you know, foreseeable few yeah. months. And people started to ping up. And I would say 85% switched their cameras on. And, and we're off and running. And then we're into sort of a 90-day transformation across the entire group, which was pretty, you know, um, pretty tough going and, um, you know, relentless. What was involved in that? So T20 bought the cording group and then they got the yeah the entire portfolio yeah so so in terms of you know clearly there was lots of things we could do with property and 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 sort of overhead costs and 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 so we we addressed all those opportunities but then of course we're looking at you know headcount and people so you know we were we we were not resilient to the, the 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 pressures and the challenges and clearly in some businesses they you know, there was opportunity to, to right size um, and, and we set about that. So, you know, the next, well, if we fast forward 18 months, we, 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 we're at sort of 23, 24 million in terms of profitability from the same group. So that was the scale of transformation. Now, that wasn't all through re-engineering the business. We had some businesses that did very well um, in, the, you know, in, in, in terms of service provision. Um, in the uh, in the pandemic, and because uh, there would have been certain roles that you guys, there would have been certain roles and in industries that you catered for that that were very robust in COVID, right? Especially like delivery drivers and all. So they, they, none of that stopped, right? That all exactly. Carried on. So, so PMP in particular, you know, that was warehouse, right? You know, groceries, logistics. You know, a cleaning business, of course, was extremely busy. You know, disinfecting and addressing. You know, and, and that was predominantly in the transport sector as well. So trains and, mm. and buses, etc. Um, and man guarding business, you know, protected it predominantly, you know, uh, infrastructure. So if you remember the big queues we used to have going for groceries, you'd have security guards making sure everything was policed. So the manpower uh, uh, businesses, you know, did very well in terms of, you know, increased requirements. And we were we were fit for purpose in terms of being able to deliver that. Um and then come back to the PMP piece. So as soon as we go remote working on that on that Monday, because we've re-engineered a business, by the by the time 2020 comes, we've gone from 22 branch locations to one basically hub in Manchester, and everything else is all digitalized. So that's where we got wow. to. And so all of that experience, knowledge, and ability to do so, we simply rolled out across the other businesses. And they became, you know, they became, uh, you know, very efficient very quickly. Um, so of course that led to, you know, um, you know, redundancies and furloughs and all those, you know, tough decisions being made. So there was a combination of fixed overhead across a group, and then of course, you know, the, the people related element. Which was how do you feel in those situations when you're when you're responsible for the livelihood of so many people? How do you? deal with that personally it's a great question i uh, my son asked me this question the other day he's he's 20 now and um it's not it's not a trophy i put on my shiny cabinet but i have made thousands of people redundant over my time but i go back to being that i think i was 20 when i had to make my first redundancy and i laid off um you know six engineers i'm 20 you know and i remember this older guy my manager at the time sitting me down and telling me I've got to do it with HR because he bottled it, right? He, he, he didn't want to face the six guys. And I walked into this room and yeah. got a script and, um, you know, what to say and what not to say. And these guys were old enough to be my father and my granddad. And I never forget it. I, I delivered this 
you know, the process, let's say, and I walked downstairs and I went into a side office and sat down as I'm sitting down and I started to cry. And uh, I never forget the guy, one of the oldest guys in the room, he knocked on the door and he came in and he thanked me for the empathy and respect I showed him in delivering the message. And, um, you know, he shook my hands and, and said, I'll do all right in business. And and so every every layoff we made, I would have been on the call. I would have been on these VCs. I'd have been explaining to the people why we were doing it. Now, of course, not everybody thanks you for that. They still, you know, some people still hate you for the tough decisions, but at least I fronted it up. You know, our teams had to deliver it with great respect, empathy, you know, and um, that will never change. You know, um, I see so many people enjoy it. I see so many people do it in a way that is crass. Yeah, I mean, even more so in the recruitment space, right? I mean, I think there's just, but you, they don't understand what it does to brand, right? To reputation, and and, and there's a way of treating people, um, and, and you can you can deliver a very tough message in a very, you know, respectful, empathetic way, and and that's that's my motto, and I'll, you know. I remember I've made laid, you know laid my wife off, my mum off over the times, you know, and uh, again, you know, if I'm laid off, I just want the respect. You've laid me. your wife and your mum off. Yeah, not at the same time, but <laughs> in various businesses over. over well, in time. what way? So they were working for a firm that you were leading. They were working for yeah, they were working for me once upon a time. Yeah, my mum's passed now, but. But, uh, yeah, I don't think she made me Sunday dinner for a few months, but after that, she was okay. Wow. Which is tough, I think it's one of them things, isn't it? It's not... Yeah, I think I was told the day you don't feel bad making those decisions and dealing with that process is the day you shouldn't manage people. Like, if you're just... If you're completely immune to the emotional element, then you're you're not the right person to be leading people anyway. Um, And it's... uh, couldn't concur more. Yeah, so yeah. difficult. Yeah, and and listen, t- times are tough, right? And and I think there's, yeah. Somebody asked me the other day, you know, what do you see the biggest difference between your services sector? Because some of the conversations I'm having now, you know, they kind of split between both industries. And I said to them, I said, what what I've still never got my head around, you know, I still see it now in organisations. This, you know, you know, people put superstars on a pedestal very quickly in the recruitment space you go from zero to hero you go from rookie to top billet you know the 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 money people in in some of the sectors is off the charts and then all of a sudden you know they have a little lull right they have a month or a two month and they're not doing two deals or three deals and and they go from hero to zero right And, and yet They've been with the organisation superstars, and 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 therefore you then see this hire and fire mentality, right? And and you get all build and burn, as I call it, right? Somebody's been built up, and then all of a sudden they're burned, and and and, and it's because they're burnt out, right? And the, the, there's not the empathy, it's not the respect, there's not you know, dealing with the root cause. And um, I mean, I'm going to football tonight, and I'm describing this to my son, and I said, look, Harry Kane went to Germany and is a legend, a superstar, he scored 18 goals. If he goes the next five games hitting the crossbar and the post, he's the worst English import ever, right? That's the mentality. But in recruitment, I see it all the time. And um, and therefore, you know, something happens, right? The person invariably leaves, but they were brilliant. And um, 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 why is that? You know, why aren't the support mechanisms there? Why isn't the trust there? Why isn't uh, the coaching? Why aren't we dealing with mental health and resilience? Why aren't we looking at root cause issues in terms of data to get them back to being brilliant when somebody has a period of sustained, you know, sort of blips? Um, but it's back to that po- point, you know, these pe- there's people in culture where you know, making quick decisions, forming judgments, and um, I think that's the, you know, the biggest I think this industry is short-sighted. There's no doubt. This industry is short-sighted and, it, and it's painful to deal yeah. with at times. I love the industry. It changed my life. But honestly, it's, it's incredibly short-sighted. And that's just something I think that 
comes from salespeople then managing more salespeople who manage more salespeople and there's there's a lack of other types of personalities at the top in these businesses um in terms of your experience then so talk us through after the you know the t20 acquisition you mentioned that you know you've got all this work you've gone through the covid period and i mean i recently interviewed the guys at hallian you were part of the, Mm -hmm. the the deal with were you part? Were you were you with T Twenty when they acquired Hallian? Yeah. Yeah. yeah so Stuart how did your role evolve, evolve, and then what what happened to your? Sorry, go on. Sorry, Sean, you just dropped out there. I said, "What was your? How did your role evolve, and what was your role? How did you like eventually finish your experience with with the investment yeah. business with T Twenty? So, so phenomenal four years, right? Um, all the all the trophies in the cabinet, including disposals. So in 21, we start disposing of businesses because we've built a desirable brand that somebody wants to pay top price for. So we sold off the services businesses to Bidvest. We sold the Australian business, uh, you know, into an MBO uh, to sue. Some of the healthcare businesses transactioned into wider T20. So the portfolio is getting smaller, right? Um we had two businesses in one in all the recruitment UK. brands. All in recruitment. Yeah, we sold PMP off to yeah. Challenge uh, TRC Logistics, and they formed the Manpower Stroke Logistics sort of empire. Um, and then we had two businesses: one in Northern Ireland, one in the UK. One was Corden People, one was Premier People. It is one of my trophies that does sit in my cabinet because Tristan said to me the day of appointing me. The recruited people is the one that's most vulnerable given the pandemic, the SME customer base and the infrastructure. Jamie, I think that one's going to go bust. It's the last remaining business and and we've doubled the profits at EBIT level. Um, But that is now uh, TRC. That's the recruitment business. And then the German business, which was our IT business and property construction business, uh, which we rebranded as staff group. I spent a lot of time in Germany with the team. Another war story, but 14 boys and girls wanted to take their own, create their own company and steal ours. So I went over and lived in Germany to protect the business and um, you know, transform culture, people and so forth. Um, and so that business needed a home. It needed to merge. It needed to, you know, to, to grow some scale. And so when Hallian was acquired in November of last year, or, with Stuart and the MBO, with the T20 guys, you know, the opportunity uh, to bring Hallian and Staff Group together and merge them to create you know, a synergy play in terms of geographies and territories and, and so forth became, you know, um, I guess, that you know, it became obvious. And, um, and so we completed that transaction, I think, in sort of March this year. Um, Stuart asked me to stay along um, as uh, you know, sort of business partner for a period of time, to which I did. While we integrated the two brands, and then so um, are they all going to be called Hallian now? It's all Hallian, yeah. It's all Hallian, yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, that's a that's a great business and a great platform and and some fantastic people, you know, in the territories who've got the opportunities like I did to go and you know build out their own sort of you know journey. Um, so that's, that's Hallian. And so, you know, my sort of exit was concluded sort of October of this year and, and 24, you know, I'm free to go and explore and, and do something new, you know, bringing the journey full, full swing to the, the sort of 10 year tenure. So did you get, were you, were you remunerated for these exits and, and yeah, very well. You, yeah, you absolutely. So again, you know, um, did very well, you know, life-changing sums of money. Um, but I think one thing that's taught me is you, you, whilst you're thankful and grateful, the other side of that equation, you know, was sort of tenfold in terms of earnings. So it was my time, I guess, you know, it was the uh, it was the opportunity I really capitalised on, which is why I come back to the advice of a lot of entrepreneurs or, you know, successful people because I've been burnt three times before on promises of wealth creation. And I hear that, I hear that rhetoric a lot in the recruitment space because of the money that's flying around. And, you know, 
I would just say to yeah. people, you know, make sure that's watertight and uh, it, it's uh, it's fit for purpose because you know it's easily said but very, you know, rarely actually delivered upon. Um, but in these, when you say forms, watertight or fit for purpose, what do you actually mean? Well, you hear all sorts of uh, you know uh, schemes, right? You know, LTIPs, growth shares, and actually, if they're not you know legally bound. If they're not drawn up and, you know, you've got shareholders agreement and then, you know, you're at the whim of the owner at some point in time. And we know people change their mind, right? And don't fulfill upon a promise. So I guess one of the things I've learned in life is, um, you know, I guess I've been vulnerable, um, not vulnerable, yeah, vulnerable and then, you know, naive to trust people on word rather than actually on contract and, and that would be only my advice i give when when people start that's probably though probably because you would follow through on your word right well i think yeah yeah 100 percent. yeah 100 percent. and and I, I just see it too that's often it comes right? from. yeah it does it does because you know i guess you know the nice guys don't always win right uh, but the last four years have been very good very good so now you've to summarize that so you've brought pmp from a loss making business 300 million turnover to making would you say 10 million in was that ebitda like yeah. profit or is that yeah. gross profit no ebitda yeah, EBITDA. so you're getting 10 million ebit out of the business yeah you've I then mean, gone would, in would, and helped anyway, i would always normalize guys. sorry sean i would always normalize that number because of the covid lift so if, if you're looking what did jay and the team do I'd say it sat around eight, right? If we take out the, the COVID spike on profitability, which you know was an anomaly yeah. for everybody, right? It's yes. still an incredible, still an incredible achievement, still an incredible achievement. And you've then, what what it seems to me is you you know you've got an ability to sit in a business regardless of your experience, a business of scale and find efficiencies, find galvanize people, build culture, build rapport, and drive, you know those drive drive those results through. How would you like? Do you think your skill set is only aligned to those bigger scalable businesses, or would you go into a or even create your own small business and follow a similar method? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the, the answer to the question is it's fit for purpose for both, right? So, if, for example, if I take my time when I was twenty nine years of age, you know, moving to America with my wife, my son, and my soon to be baby girl. You know, the business out there at the time was doing $4 million in sales, delivering, you know, manpower solutions. And when I left, it was doing $60 million. I would open up in 12 offices, right? Because somebody went and did the door knocking, sold, and then we delivered the service or solution. So that entrepreneurialism, I think, is, you know, is, is fit for, you know, both you know, establishments. And, you know, as I assess what I'm going to do next, you know, it's... There might be some co-invest. There might be some, you know, non-executive roles where I want to help organisations grow and transform. Um, because I guess I've got the life lessons which are transferable and have a, you know, I can look through a different lens. And if I can support and coach and mentor and, you know, get people to think perhaps differently and believe in, you know, their dreams can be chased down, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera really doesn't matter what the, the the size of the business is because uh, they can scale very quickly. To to put me into an organization for me to be there full time and and, and you know and to fund me, etc., then clearly it's got to be something of scale or I'm co-invested in the upside of something I'm building out, you know, a new territory, region, vertical, whatever it may be. Um, so yeah, right. there's some, some interesting opportunities. So if someone's listening to this thinking, I like the sound of Jamie, I'm, I wouldn't mind her reaching out and having a chat. What would you say, you know, what's your, what, what can you do for them? How could you help them? Um, well, I mean, it's growth, it's transformation, or it's coaching, mentoring, right? I mean, some people have done that. I always, right. in, you know, invite uh, requests. I mean, there's a couple of guys you probably know them because they're part of the recruit hub. You know, a couple of guys who set up on their own. Um, and um, I had a VC with them the other week. 
they shared with me a non-exec proposal. I laughed. I put it in the bin and said, look, I tell you what, I really like you. If I can give you an hour or two a month on a VC, then I'll do it pro bono, right? And that's not because I'm a charity, you know, but actually I really like them. They've got some real energy. They're doing some great stuff. I enjoyed their conversation and they think I can provide a bit of counsel and guidance. Um, and when they make all their money, they can take me out for a dinner or donate something on a charity page. But actually, I felt energized by, you know, the conversation. And, and, and so they were giving me something back because clearly, you know, I'm not amongst, you know, people and teams. At, at and you, I've, and since we started talking, I've, obviously followed you on Instagram and you put a lot on there about your life and you're very open and you're, you're doing your cold plunging every day and you're, you're constantly, yeah. you've, you put out a very positive message on a daily basis. So, you know, how would you describe your life? Cause you, you don't strike me as someone who's overly stressed from the out offset. You sound like you look like you're having a great time. That's the, the vibe I'm getting. So, you know, do you need to work? Are you working because you need to, you work as you want to like, what, what, how would you describe your life? Yeah. I mean, listen, I'm in a privileged position. I don't need to work, right? So, uh, but I haven't been, a, I guess I haven't needed to work for quite a while. So, you know, I do use a phrase, it's a hobby, not a job. Um, do I want to get back into business and helping organizations? The answer is yeah, because, you know, for the last nine, 10 years, I've been working with hundreds, thousands of people, helping them transform their businesses in some shape or size. And of course, that community, that belonging, and it comes back to my, I guess my childhood and families, you, you know, every yeah. business that I've gone in, they've become an extension of me, you know, in terms of family. They've given me something to be a part of. I think that's very evident. And so when you finish with an organization or a group, as I did, there's a big void, right? There's only really so many, only so many mm -hmm. times I can walk the dog or pester my wife. You know, I've been married for 25 years and she's never seen as much as me in the last three months is, is, is we, is she has in 25 or 30 we've been together and so you know there's a there's a craving inside me to be a part of something or many things and give back and that's you know and so the ice the, the ice uh baths came about one because i wanted to bring some structure i wanted to test myself i wanted the resilience and i'd looked at the, the health benefits but actually one of the things that it really gave me was a link to it, you know, the Instagram and, and, and strangers around the world and share, right? And because I needed that, uh, you know, I've just started, as you've probably seen Zoe this week and, and sort of understanding the gut and nutrition. And so, yeah. so it's all part of that continued learning for me and being part of communities where, you know, uh, people are doing good. And um, the whole health and well-being piece, you know, that's really important because at 33 years of age, nobody prepared me for, a, you know, an epiphany moment. And, and so I see, you know, so many people in our sector that are heading towards that red zone, you know, because the stress, the pressure, they were a hero, now they're a zero. They're overspending the money they're earning, they're not saving. All these things that life is putting on their shoulders at a young age. And, and that was me. And I popped at 33. And so when I talk about, you know, mental health and stress and, and so forth, I can talk because I can, I can be vulnerable because I went through it, I lived it and came out the other side with help and support. So what you what you see on Instagram is partly to wind my kids up. Uh, you know, I haven't been on there that long, uh, <laughs> mainly because I was so remote and they could see what I was doing. But actually a sense of giving back and, and sharing. And, and if that helps one person, then for me, you know, I've given back and I'm, I'm doing okay. Jamie, thanks so much for your time, mate. That was, uh, that was awesome. I think we could do another episode on this and talk more about that mental health journey. We don't, we've run out of time, unfortunately today, but um, if anyone does want to reach out to you, is LinkedIn a good place to, to do that? Yeah, absolutely, buddy. Yeah. Well, you can find me in an ice bath in uh, in Insta, but yeah, LinkedIn <laughs> on Instagram. <laughs> but yeah, I'll get we'll tag you and everything. But like I say, I hope people reach out. I think you've added a lot of value in the conversations we've had, and I think um, there's plenty of recruitment owners will resonate with this. So I hope they do, and we'll get you back on again in the future. I no doubt you're going to land in some pretty epic role in the next year, and uh, I'll get you back on and we'll talk about what you do. Brilliant. Well, thanks, Sean. Take care, buddy. Cheers, buddy. See you, champ. Bye-bye.
Thank you as always for listening to today's show. I truly hope that you got value from it. Honestly, it's the only reason I take time every week to ensure that my audience, you guys, future and existing recruitment owners, you're learning from each other to make this industry that I love so much stronger. And today's episode is brought to you by my business, Hoxo. I'm the CEO and founder, and we're on a mission to help brand recruitment agencies and their people better. I want to help people have the tools to stand out in the most competitive markets in the world. We're currently working with over 350 recruitment agencies and 5,000 of their consultants right now, helping them to build their personal brands to consistently win more business, attract talent, and just become that go-to recruiter in the market. Now, we do have a huge coaching program, but a lot of people don't know, we also manage the brands of a lot of founders and we can do the rebrand of that company organizational piece as well. So if your recruitment agency either needs help to look and sound exactly how you want it to, or your leadership and consultant level need to get out there and drive more traffic back to that website, to the business, and start using LinkedIn to generate more revenue, then you should definitely be reaching out to us. If that sounds of interest, please do visit www.hoxomedia.com or drop me, Sean, a personal message on LinkedIn. I love hearing from RAG listeners. I would love to talk to you. Uh, Look forward to it. So I'll see you again next week with another episode. Catch you soon.